Here are the highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. Visit freetalklive.com for the full episode. In the studio with you tonight, it's me, Bonnie. Riley. And Nikki. And we're really happy to have Riley in here. He's uh, moved here, actually completely moved from Utah That's right. I I just barely moved about two weeks ago. The big reason for me is I want to be part of the Free State Project and get more liberty in my lifetime. Plus, I'm closer to my girlfriend who lives about 300 miles from me. So she lives in Pennsylvania, and now I'm in New Hampshire. Nice. So so is it easier to jump on a plane and get to Pennsylvania from here than from Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And it's probably going to be a little cheaper. Yeah, I I just think it's so great that whenever anybody picks up their life and moves to New Hampshire for the Free State Project, and if the listener doesn't know what that is, it's a project of people coming together and they chose, they voted and they chose New Hampshire to be the place to move to. And they're moving there to all together as a group, create more freedom and liberty in New Hampshire. And I think that's important because... When you get a group of people together that value the same things, everything's going to change. Like, for example, you know, if you value things like cannabis decrim and you move to a place that's got cannabis decrim, that's all great. But let's say you move to a place that doesn't and you want to get more people involved in decriminalizing something like cannabis, then, yeah, move to a place with a bunch of people to get it done. And I mean, as far as like, you know, cannabis decriminalization, decriminalization in general i think it's only a matter of time like something like that in new hampshire it's only a matter of time all of the surrounding states are filled with dispensaries it's very laxed in maine and in massachusetts and i think in new hampshire we have such an air of freedom here and i think a lot of you know even the locals like people who grew up here kind you know like myself I, I think a lot of people, like, no one is really against people smoking weed smoking here. Weed, right. right. It's more just, like, the technicalities. And I'm actually really surprised that it's still I think- such a big deal here. And, like, that's the joke that everybody makes because I, you know, I spend a good amount of time in Massachusetts. And that's one of the things that comes up when I'm talking to people, you know, especially in Massachusetts, who, I mean, weed has been at least decriminalized. Well, I don't know why I can't say that today. But um, <laughs> at least decriminalized in Massachusetts for years. Right. And that's like the ongoing joke is, yeah, live free or die, except when it comes to weed. I just think I would argue with those people. I mean, probably not actually at work or something because that's just annoying, but I would tell them, I honestly think that uh, the way that we're doing it in New Hampshire is better. Even if it's not where I want it to be yet, I prefer decriminalization, which is already happening in New Hampshire, way over the legalization route where... Um, you know, things get taxed and there's only like some of these states, they have laws about marijuana, which is like, why this plant? Why not tomatoes? But yeah. only the the government has to choose who's allowed to sell it, things like that. And lots of bills have come up in the New Hampshire State House over the years, especially recently, where people are proposing like, oh, yeah, we're going to finally do the thing. We're going to finally legalize marijuana. We're going to make it like this. And it would be way worse than it is right now. Yeah. And we can't have that. We got to have it all the way decriminalized. And I, I would say regulate marijuana like tomatoes. That's right. my policy. That would be an amazing first. We would be, I mean, I already think that the marijuana marijuana laws in New Hampshire are mostly good. People, Ian did a FOIA request in, I think he requested it like before he even met me, like in 2020, but early 2020. 
after the most recent like good decriminalization laws came out for to see how many people have been arrested in Keene. I think it was just mm-hmm. Keene for marijuana and he didn't get it back until like the end of 2021. So in like a whole year, only I think nine people got arrested and didn't get charged or maybe like one or two got actually charged. And that's the thing too. And it seems like when, you know, police are doing traffic stops, they do like they can use their discretion. So a lot of the times they'll, you know, just either pretend they didn't see it or I I think it's very rare that a cop would actually like prosecute someone over it or like, you know, they're going to try to get them on something else before that. It's not the the culture has just changed so much around it. Like it's not like drinking and driving. I mean, right. if a cop pulls you over and you're drunk, they're absolutely going to try to stick you with a DUI. Unless, um, you know, unless you're in their club and maybe you're one of the other town cops, you know, niece or nephew or something. In that right. case, they usually let you go, but And that's the thing about small town governments is uh, you know, the the cops like the good old boys. They're going to let them off. They'll let off the good old boy family members, and they won't let you off if you're a newcomer. There are some studies being done on some of, like, the possible, you know, like, risks, but also the side effects of using marijuana medicinally in pregnancy. Hmm. You know, I've heard of some people saying, you know, I was so nauseous. They had um, hyperemesis, which is when you are just vomiting a lot throughout pregnancy, to the point where they couldn't eat a single thing, and the only thing that helped them with that was eating edibles or, oh, or wow. smoking weed. That's interesting. So there are some certain conditions. Like I think as long as the pros outweigh the cons, and I think eating it versus smoking it is usually better because smoking anything is typically mm-hmm. not good for your health. Right. Um, and of course, like in moderation, like you shouldn't be getting super stoned every day. But I just think that women deserve to have the right to use it medicinally or oh. even discuss it with their doctor Absolutely. or, you know, like discuss it, be able to discuss it with their doctor or their midwife or like whoever their healthcare practitioner is. Why does the state need to get involved? I think that's the point. I think that's a good point, Nikki. I, I think that, you know, when an institution calling itself government gets involved in your life, that makes it really tough for me to justify Having this organization around. Yeah. I mean, ruining uh, families right when a baby is born. I like, mean, that's going to help the baby. And think of that. Like, imagine having a CPS case. And, like, notoriously, like, once you have one CPS case, like, once they know your name, you are on their list for life. And, like, if you if anything else happens, like, that's an automatic red flag. Like, oh, you, you already had an open case at one point. Even if it was resolved immediately, it looks very, very bad. Yeah. So, like, that's not really fair just because, I mean, even if somebody was smoking it during pregnancy, I just, you know, it's it's not something that I would do, but I just don't necessarily think it warrants an open CPS case. You know the what main, I mean? Like, you can't compare that to, like, doing heroin while you're pregnant. The main thing that I'm, I'm not going to ever have kids, Ian got a vasectomy, I don't know why I have to say it, but he got a vasectomy, I'm just never going to have kids. But the main reason I wouldn't do it is just because I can't even imagine, like, the anxiety. Like, that sounds... Like, if you already... You felt like it'd be fine, you convinced yourself it'd be fine, and then you just start feeling anxious 
I feel like that would be really bad. That would um, feel terrible. Yeah, I mean, and that happens to me anyways when I right. smoke weed. Like, I cannot smoke because of, like, the psychological effects. And I used to smoke a ton of weed. Like, I used to be a big, big pothead. <laughs> and then, I, I don't know, I just don't enjoy it like that anymore. That's fine. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I wouldn't use it anyways, but... um. But yeah, I mean, and it, it it can be a great tool for things like anxiety. I mean, it's so crazy how differently this drug affects different people. Like yeah. you can't really say the same about something like kratom, which I'm drinking right now. It's basically going to affect. Well, one thing that's weird about kratom is like some people just be like, it didn't affect me at all. And um, I I have heard that some people like have like widely different effects from it. Like some well, people are like, oh, it's like kratoms. Adderall, and then some people are like. Oh, it makes me like some people are using it as but if like they're drinking methadone. the same strain, like they they're pretty similar. It's just yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about that either. I think but. that what's weird about weed is like two people can smoke the same joints and have wildly different reactions. Yeah, maybe I, I that's think to comes, do with tolerance too. Yeah, I also I also think it comes down to the psychology of the individual. Like if you're prone to anxiety, yeah, you're gonna face more anxiety and you gotta work through those demons. I don't know. Nikki and I have talked about this a lot off air, and I am just not prone to anxiety. Like, I didn't really know what being anxious felt like until I was an adult. When I was in Mm -hmm. high school, I'm sure that it it hit me sometimes, but I never just sat around like, I'm anxious for no reason. That never happened to me. And I would smoke a lot of weed in high school. I would get so high. I would have, like, closed-eyed visuals. I got so much higher in high school than I even could get now it's so weird like i don't even think i could get in that place again but um i was also like 80 pounds but um <laughs> now it's like i and my point of saying that was i would get so high in high school and never feel anxious about it just be like oh this is normal this is normal to be feel like this and this is great and all of a sudden when i was like 21 or 22 i just started being like wow i it was like some for some reason i had to take a break So I took a break for like getting a job or something like that. And then I just started getting intense anxiety every time I smoked it. And I just don't feel I mean, I know that uh, psychological things are involved. Like, you know, there was probably a lot going in my life on in my life at the time. But I also think that it just is prone to give me anxiety now. In the last segment, we were all talking about. Well, we started off just talking about activism and moving to New Hampshire for finding more freedom in our lives. And that brought us to the subject of Riley. He started a... Riley just moved here, by the way. Like, the last couple days of July, right? Yeah, I moved here on July 18th. I actually flew in on July 18th. So, that's when I got here. It's been two weeks and one day, so... Yeah, here I am. And he's already more active than a lot of free staters. Um, he started his own. I mean, I would say that Riley was more active than a lot of free staters before he even got here. That's a great point. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, why would you say that, Nikki? I don't know. I feel like you like help a lot with the show, like doing the digest and right. and there are a lot of free staters who like don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And like, don't get me wrong, you are not obligated to do any sort of activism if you move here. Right. Even just being a freedom minded person, or not even that. Even just not like voting for some of the crap politicians that hmm. some of the people that live here are voting for. Hmm. Um, so sometimes doing nothing at all, like, is doing something kind of. But yeah, well, the thing about Free Talk Live is it's the show that really turned me on to liberty. Mm-hmm. And you know, I started doing the digest in 2016 because you know someone in the FTL AMP Facebook group wanted 
to have Free Talk Live in a, my, in a more listenable format, and I volunteered my, my time and my talents to do that, and so I've been doing that for a while, so... I mean, I think it's great, and a lot of people do enjoy that because it is. It, it can be a lot to listen to a three-hour-long radio show. Oh, yeah. And for a lot of people who do want to listen every day but maybe don't have all of that time, it is nice to have a condensed version. And I mean, essentially, you can listen to like more than three days in the time that you would listen to one episode. Right. And I have the digests around an hour long, so you know, if you're commuting on a long commute or whatever... You can listen to it, or if you have a short commute, you know, you could put it in and do a 20-minute commute to work and a 20-commute home and maybe 20 minutes before you go to bed. So, you know, break the digest up a little bit. I used to listen to Free Talk Live just the whole thing because I would do Uber Eats. I would do it in the morning, then take a break, and then I would go back out and drive around getting Uber Eats orders and delivering them at, I think it was 6 to 10. Yeah, it was 6 to 10 in, in Texas. That was 7 to wait six to nine so it's seven to ten here because of time difference and that was the exact time i went to go out and do uber eats so i had that much time but i've heard so much good things like people just um people we know free staters who listen to the show will tell me that they always listen to the digest because you know they're busy or i don't know maybe they're just not as much of a long form type person i mean it's still long form but yeah that long of a show I mean, I think an hour is more comparable to like a podcast length, right? Like right. normally podcasts can range anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour and a half. So I feel like that's pretty typical of what most people's attention span would be. But and we're doing a radio show and so we're always taking breaks, but the digest doesn't have any breaks. So, you know. Right. Yeah. For the people that don't want to hear us introduce ourselves, like I don't even know how many times it'd be. Is it just, it's, uh, I guess, six times during a show? Yeah, six times. Well, it used to be more. Yep, yep, used you to know. be 12. Yep. We um, cut out some breaks. Well, I brought it up just that Riley moved here because I was saying right when he moved here, he started his own event, um, a 420 event. It's at 420 p.m. in Keene, uh, in Keene at Railroad Square every Friday. And so if you'd like to come, you can come. And I'm encouraging people to bring rocks, like clean your rock. And then because I just don't have time to go collect a whole bunch of rocks, but I have paint. <laughs> And we can paint them with, you know, messages about freedom and leave them all over New Hampshire. And I'm also bringing chalk. And it's just kind of a hangout sesh while pe- some people smoke weed, trying to normalize weed. But I, I brought it up because that was what we were talking about last segment. And Riley brought in this interesting story tonight, an opinion piece about psychedelics. This is from symbiosity.com. And it's called Understanding the Practice of Psychedelic Spirituality. So do you already uh, read or listen to this, Riley? I have read through it briefly, but go ahead and read it and yeah. start and we can talk about some of the concepts that come up. I'm sure we have a lot to say about this, oh, for this sure. subject. I mean, we already basically dipped into it last subject or last segment, just about uh, marijuana at least, which marijuana is a psychedelic. It's like a, a low grade psychedelic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true because I know people, a lot of people who have had visuals, hmm. and of course, like it is mind-altering, but it can be like very spiritual and like similar to psychedelics. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, edibles edibles are more psychedelic in nature than uh, smoking because really? edibles are a slightly different chemical when they're broken down in your body. Hmm. And that makes sense because typically if you're taking psychedelics, you're, you're typically going to eat them. Yeah. So kind of does make sense. Yep. It starts off, um, it doesn't, oh, it says that the writer is Daniel Hanna. 
And he says, I'm sure anyone who's nosedived deep enough into a psychedelic trip will tell you how profound the experience is. But is there something more to the psychedelic experience than a simple misfiring of chemicals in your brain? I don't really understand uh, taking mushrooms and like going to a party. I've never done anything. Like I've that. never done anything like that either, and I would never do anything like that because it just isn't my my thing. It's um, it's too overwhelming. So I will say, I used when I was like in high school, I would uh, you know do acid, take mushrooms. I would actually do all sorts of drugs and then go to concerts a lot. Oh, wow. I've always gone to a lot of concerts. Um, typically, like I would go to a concert at least once a week. Um, and we would get really, you know, we would take all sorts of different things. Um, yeah. And I would go to concerts and, and typically like it was a very different experience than like being at home, but I would still say like, I typically had a good experience. I don't know if I would do anything like that (laughs) these days. Um, but that, you know, like when you're in high school, it's like the stakes feel a lot lower. Like you're just, yeah. Like, maybe more brave, but also, like, more bold. Like, I would do anything in high school. Right. See, for me, I didn't do any of those things in high school because I was raised in a religious environment, and that that just wasn't something I wanted to do or had the desire to do. I was more desirous, more interested in trying to live a religious life and be a good person than try anything. But now, in my adult life, it's like, oh, I've left this religion and decided to go on a spiritual path of my own and I get to explore things and now I have to figure out how to balance, you know, my real life with this exploration of psychedelics and cannabis. And sometimes it can be a challenge, but the nice thing is when you get outside your own life and meet with other people, it helps you stay grounded in the present moment and helps you learn how to navigate, you know, being high versus being in reality. And I think being in reality is just as important whether you're getting high or not. And one thing that that opens up is I just don't understand why people can be tricked into believing that it's just always bad. And I, and I wasn't trying to say like um, that you should never take psychedelics and like go to a party. It's just that I sincerely can't even I don't I don't think I would have fun. I would, wouldn't want to do that. Sometimes yeah. I get scared of, like, skin. When I'm on mushrooms, skin looks so gross. I don't want to, like... <laughs> um. Yeah, that actually is a great point. Like, I've looked at... You know, I've, and it, it depends how many mushrooms you take, right? Because you can kind of microdose or take a smaller dose, and it's a very different experience than if you eat, like, a whole eighth or something. Yeah. Um. But I have had that experience where I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a lizard. Yeah, just you know, <laughs> like you just have that, like, whoa, that's not me. Um, exactly, it can be freaky. <laughs> I'm sure it can be, and maybe, maybe you know, having an experience of looking at yourself in the mirror while you're tripping could be a little jarring for people. Yeah, right. I I looked in the mirror on shrooms once, and I felt like I was just looking at a lifeless body, and it was really scary. So, yeah, I'm not trying to scare people out of uh, doing it though, because I, quickly I went to the other room. I Got dressed into something with less skin showing. I don't like skin on shrooms, like I said. It just looks gross. Like, yeah. I just don't like the way it, it looks. And it makes me start remembering that I'm, like, stuck in a skin suit and that's weird. It's weird when you're on <laughs> shrooms. It's not as weird, like, saying it right now. It's like, I mean, I love my body. Yeah. And I don't think it's ugly. It's huh. it's something just so strange that lots of people have uh, said the same thing to me. Like, they just don't like the look of human faces and stuff like that on shrooms. Interesting. But, um... I felt like, oh, yeah. So what I was going to say is it's just crazy to me 
to think of like why there is this idea that doing drugs is immoral because you brought up being raised Mormon and not uh, wanting to be a good person and therefore not doing drugs. And it just why I I understand why people would maybe think like doing meth. Like, I I still don't think it it in itself makes you a bad person, but it's a bad thing. Right. I think it's it's the purity. Right. Like people just want to be like pure of heart and pure of self. And I think I I don't know. I, I wasn't raised religious. So it's hard to live in a world where, you know, you have to be pure of heart and pure of self because your self, you are rubbing up against experiences that are going to challenge you and help you either be a better person or help ruin your or cause you to ruin your life. And I think drugs can ruin your life if you don't put them in their proper place and don't use them properly. Right. And I think that's like everything, though. Right. Obviously, it's going to be easier to ruin your life doing meth than with um, eating food. But you can still ruin your life by not having a balance in your life eating food. Like, absolutely. If you eat way too much food every day and way past when you're not hungry anymore just because it's your comfort thing, that, that can ruin your life. I think the underlying important thing in all things is having a balance. Yeah. And, you know, being a workaholic can ruin your life too because maybe you become right. an absent person in your children's life. Major Payne, you're on the, uh, on the air. Hey, good evening, y'all. Yeah, first I wanted to touch on the uh, whole marijuana pot thing, but of course I can delve off into mushrooms and peyote and spiritual world as well, because as you know, I'm long in the tooth. <laughs> I got many. But um, so as far as Nikki mentioned this, I, I noticed I've been smoking tobacco and pot for better than 50 years. Well, just about 50 years, though, I guess. Yeah, one more. One more. I started when I was 12. But anyway, um, I never noticed until I got older that cigarettes would upset my stomach, especially when I didn't have no fuel in the tank, so to speak. Yep. Mm. But marijuana would settle my gut, and it still does. When I get nauseous, I have a couple, three puffs. Because I don't know if you guys, how much people have smoked, but if you smoke and you belch, you will actually puff up some smoke. So a certain percentage of that does go into your gut sack as you're inhaling. Interesting. I don't think I've ever had that happen to me before. Yeah, that's never happened to me before either. One time when I was first smoking, my friend who was like, she had already smoked a lot. We were 15 or she was 14. I don't know. Anyways, she had already smoked a lot. She kept saying like, stop swallowing it. Like you're trying to swallow it. So I was always just like, okay, okay. Like, and I've just made an effort to... Try not to swallow it, quote unquote. So I don't know. I, I, that was like one of the first times I ever smoked. So maybe I've just like drilled that into my head. Like I, I've never burped up smoke. So yeah, well, I don't know. Well, but, the other thing I noticed about reefer was uh, my mind works way too fast, and sometimes, especially when I'm in a project, I'll get three or four steps ahead of myself in my head as far as what I'm actually doing, and then I'll trip over the rock that I'm trying to deal with. You know, so pot slows me down a little bit, hmm. and that actually does help me function better as far as not having to go LRN.FM. Well, Major, I know that you most likely won't, won't do it again since you're a regular caller, so I'm not going to dump you. Well, I dumped the call. Like, it's not getting on the air. 
Well, I I thank you, Bonnie. I've heard you f up a time or three myself. I've only done it <laughs> twice, <laughs> so not three. <laughs> but so I yeah, anyway, um, I ate a quarter ounce of mushrooms once, and that was not good. Hmm. What happened? And ate. Well, I that's it's so bad. I'm not even going to transcribe it because I don't even want to remember. I remember crawling out of the woods at a festival and begging some teenagers that were walking down the street. All I could get out was, Water! Oh, oh, no. oh, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. This, this girl looked at me and says, do you care if it's been drunk out of them? Because she's already had a couple of pulls out the bottle, right? And I just looked at her and said, Water! <laughs> that sounds like a rough time, dude. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, too much of a good thing is, too much of a good thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I the only time I ever really had a spiritual experience, I think, was on peyote. Hmm. And I actually saw Mescalito. Hmm. It was a very pristine scenario on the edge of a river, sitting in a fork tree, looking out over the fog. And he come walking at me up over the river, all dressed in a fancy Mexican feather suit, right? But his head was just a fog. Interesting. It was a what? Sorry, what was this? It was just kind of like a fog bank. Hmm. There, there was no face on the mat. Whoa! And this, yeah, it was kind of weird. This guy was somebody I, I didn't. I didn't know who the guy was. You told said he, he was. He, he's somebody that wasn't really Me, there. Me, Mescalito is the uh, ancient god of mescaline from Mexico. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. Cool. That's why he was dressed in the Aztec feather suit. I might have been able to see his headdress, but I couldn't see his face. Wow, that's really crazy. You were talking about kids being able to perceive things that adults can't. I remember once, my Uncle Tim died when I was about, I don't know, five or six. Mm -hmm. And I was just starting to get into pot. I was like 12 years old or something. And I'm laying in bed, and I woke up with a start, and he was in the corner of my room. I could hear his voice. I could see just a little floating fog bank. And he talked to me out of the fog, and he just said, Pat, be a good boy. Wow. Do what you know is right. And he was gone. And you said you so, were smoking at the time? or No, no. Well, I, I, I had just probably started. I mean, I was 12. Mm-hmm. I probably got a hold of my first vodka bottle a year before or something, you know? Okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't start out stealing roaches out of my parents' ashtray when I was eight because they were not partakers of such. Hmm. Right. You know, that's interesting that you share that story. I've had, um, I wouldn't say similar experiences, but I have had very interesting, like weird, vivid experiences um, smoking weed before, like while I was very young, probably like 13 years old. There was this one time I've always really liked vinyls and a lot of my vinyl collection I've inherited from my father. And I had this like really crazy vivid experience where I was listening to maybe Zeppelin four. It was the first time I had listened to that. I've listened to it before, but I think it was the first time that I listened to it while I was extremely high on marijuana. And I was just sitting in my room and all of a sudden I had, I don't know if I would call it an outer body experience, but it was almost like I was living in the perspective of my father. Me and my best friend Katie used to like 
you know, go on walks at night, go through graveyards, play with Ouija boards. Like we would just do stuff like that. Uh, and there were a few experiences that I didn't, I have a very poor memory. Um, and I would have experiences where, or she would remind me of experiences, um, and yeah, so like if you don't have somebody to kind of go back and forth with and either jog your memory or like keep it fresh in your memory, like me and Katie talk about this Ouija board experience we had like almost every time we see each other, mm. you know, so, but if I didn't have her and maybe that happened to me alone, maybe I wouldn't have you like remembered it as visit as vividly. The other thing is, I just think, like you said about the Bigfoot podcast, I've mentioned that before because Matt got me to start listening to them. And it always blows my mind how many people say, I didn't tell anyone. My mom, I did first tell my mom, she told me, don't ever talk about this in your entire life. It's like, that sounds so alien to me because my parents would totally listen to me about something like that. And I feel like I've never had a friend that would just laugh me out of town about it. And I just think that it's kind of a thing that maybe it was like, it was worse to seem crazy when our great grandparents were alive because you know it would cost you a job you know it's not christian yeah. something like that yeah. you yeah. know and that's the thing about dogmatic religion is it creates this this box where every every experience has to be put into and if it doesn't fit that box it's it's against god it's not truth it's like yeah. i am interested in what is true i'm not interested in ignoring things that i see right in front of me because it doesn't fit in with what I think. Right. Well, and it is so ex- uh, easy to, you know, to have an experience and just write it off as something else. You know, like if the if the light flickers, one person's going to say it was a ghost and one person's going to say, oh, it was an electrical short. Whatever the truth, I mean, there is a, a real concrete truth of what happened in that moment. But, um, you know, it's whether you're willing to investigate it or, you know, just... Go based off of your, like, the first thing that, you know, your initial instinct. And it's just so silly to me that, like, the light flickering is, like, maybe not the best example because lights can totally flicker. Yeah. But say there was no reason that the light flickered and it was really a ghost. The thing is, there are some people that won't even look at that possibility because the other one is more likely. And I just think that's so silly to cut out all possibilities And only look at what is most likely. Well, it's scary. A lot of the unknown is scary. So a lot of people just, it's safer to, to come up with an explanation for things, you know, like, and if you're, if you're determined enough, like I've had some experiences that I could not explain that with literally anything else. Like it had to be something that I could not understand. Um, But people, if they are determined enough, they will get very creative and come up with something or even just say, I don't know what it was, but it would definitely not something like that, you know, like a ghost or whatever. Hmm. Yep. I, I just don't get that. I'm not saying those people shouldn't be able to live their lives that way or anything. It's just, I just, just think it's so fun to talk about like the unknown. I think so too. I think it's fascinating to explore the, explore these topics because, you know, nationally syndicated radio shows like ours on talk radio don't talk about them typically unless it's late night talk radio like coast to coast have you had any type of experience like that uh riley like you're sober and Uh, no not when i'm sober interestingly enough (laughs) i've had strange strange experiences while on cannabis or mushrooms but nothing when i'm sober strangely enough any interesting story 
Um, ooh, um, I've had, I've had ancestors visit me on mushrooms. I've had experiences like that. I've had experiences where, you know, dead loved ones or dead relatives came to visit too. They bring, just bring you a feeling of love or yeah, anything like absolutely. that? absolutely. Bring me a feeling of love. Bring me a feeling of peace. I, I felt like I connected with, connected with them in the afterlife and the story they were telling about the afterlife did not match what I thought the afterlife was, it just seemed like, hey, we know the truth of the story, and the story you've been telling yourself about life is wrong. Just be okay with embracing a new story. Hey, Daily Digest listeners, this is Riley Blake. I enjoy Free Talk Live, and I know you do too, but finding time to listen to an entire episode isn't always easy, so I produce the Daily Digest. I appreciate those of you who have supported me on Patreon and sent Bitcoin to me to thank me for producing these digests. For those who wish to support me on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash crblake86. If you wish to send Bitcoin, visit patreon.com slash crblake86 for those details. That's patreon.com slash crblake86. Thank you. David in San Francisco, you're on Free Talk Live. What's on your mind? Well, I heard you talking about psychedelics, and um, since I uh, live near the Haight-Ashbury, I thought I'd chime in on some of the aspects of it. And what's I'm that? Like- Sorry. Beg pardon? Uh, what is the Haight-Ashbury? Oh, well, it's a famous uh, place where it all began in San Francisco back 50, so almost 60 years ago, uh, in uh, the Haight-Ashbury, the Haight Street where it meets Ashbury okay. uh, Street. And um, the, uh, you know, uh, Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. And yeah, Grateful Dead. Of... Terrence McKenna. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, Terrence McKenna. As a matter of fact, I was trying to remember his name. Um, it, so I went to a lecture a couple of years ago. People were talking about uh, the how the hate fell apart. Uh, and the um, the issue came up that in the earliest days of the use of psychedelics, people were interested in uh, in spirituality and expanding their minds, uh, in forward motion, growth, you know, such as that. But uh, and and so the people that actually made things like LSD and some of the other uh, chemical formulas used it themselves. And they were not interested in passing out a bad batch. And the idea that sometime later there were profiteers that came in there that would come up with a bad batch. You know, in in the movie Woodstock, they say, don't take the brown acid. Uh, You know, so there there were profiteers that were either sloppy in their work and they didn't care whether they made a bad batch. They were just interested in making a buck. And, um, so that was one of the themes of uh, of this discussion, that the Haight-Ashbury got kind of overrun with profiteers uh, who then, when they started coming up with bad batches, then they started coming up with barbiturates, uh, speed, uh, a variety of different uh, chemicals and that were really uh, nothing more than things that were going to knock you, you know, flat on your face. So whether it was like a Mickey Finn, uh, if you're familiar with that old expression, um, they give you something to knock you out and then they'll steal your wallet and maybe Shanghai you into a ship. 
And um, the idea that uh, the profiteers were the problem, and uh, it, it became further exacerbated with, um, if you've ever studied the Black Panthers, J. Edgar Hoover was really, he was trying to sabotage them, and he got them hooked on heroin. Hmm. And by doing that, he also got, uh, he was trying to get black people hooked on heroin, but he inevitably got white kids uh, hooked on heroin, and that created more fun for the profiteers and more collapse of uh, of the Haight-Ashbury and the, the kind of the joy of the hippie movement. So, I, so I just wanted... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Destroy people's lives for political reasons. Right, and that's what politicians do. They just love to destroy people's lives anyway. Yep. Well, right. And if you read some of the biographies of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, in some ways he knew what he was doing, and in some ways he sort of regretted it. If you know um, of his history, uh, one of his grandfathers was black, and uh, and as a kid, he made a he, Hoover himself was so light skinned that he what the expression is, is he passed. And so he never was seen in, in a photograph again after the age of eight. He was never seen with uh, his his black grandfather again. And um, he was also gay. And he uh, was always, uh, you know, on the in the closet. And so since the um, the Haight-Ashbury and the hippie movement were interested in integration, uh, you know, expansive living, uh, the gay movement was there, the women's movement, the environmental movement, there were all sorts of different uh, reasons to move forward in life. And J. Edgar Hoover was going to protect the polluters, so he'd crush the environmentalists. He was, you know, women were getting 69 cents on the dollar for what a man made, so he was going to help the corporations crush the women's movement. Hmm. And he was there to uh, crush the gay movement because uh, organized crime was blackmailing you if you were gay. Sarah, what's on your mind? Yes, I just want to bring up another stupid thing that we're doing here in the South Valley, and they put in three roundabouts, and the drivers are plowing, plowing, driving right through it. Like, oh my that god! What supposed to do with a no, roundabout? You mean like through the middle? That's correct. <laughs> oh yeah, my wow! Are there like yeah, signs and- there? Because I mean, I, <laughs> I understand if someone's never seen one before, but I mean, typically. It's very clear that yeah. there is almost, I wouldn't necessarily call it a median, but something similar, like in the middle of the roundabout or the rotary. And it, it's usually pretty clear that you do not just drive straight through it. I don't know if these people are impaired yeah. or just and they're care. not paying attention, um, L- but it's it's pretty obvious. And I've, I've also seen signs, at least up here, where especially if it's like a two laned um, roundabout, that it will kind of almost like a road sign that's a picture of it. Yeah. So I that's crazy. They're not common in New Mexico or in Texas or anywhere else that I've ever lived before I moved here. They're very common in New Hampshire. But listen, no one is doing that on accident. Like you would have to be just like F this roundabout or to impaired. go through the middle. Or, or like they yeah. were hammered or something. <laughs> well, I don't know. The the roundabout that they put here is kinda like um they just have a little fine and it's kind of circular, flat 
piece in the um air, uh, like a like a smooth piece. So that that is the attitude that the South Valley part of the county is like um, kind of like known for like a lot of shootings and a lot of dope dealing. Uh, that not so smart people are kind of living down that way, and so this is the kind of like attitude. And then the, so their solution is they spent like four million dollars to put in the roundabout. Wow. Now they want to spend more money to turn it into a four way. So they could T-bone each other like three in the morning. Oh, my God. That's the solution. Okay. Yeah, it just so, seems like a bad idea. Like, I don't know why they would keep throwing money at this issue. Just put more signs up or something, but paint it I, Like, brighter. I'm wondering, are people, like, trying to protest it? Like, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I'm not using this. I'm just going to drive straight <laughs> through it. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking because I just... Even the first time I ever drove up on one, I, I knew what they... I had seen them in TV, on TV... I was like, oh, it's one of these things, and I got to pay attention to know what I'm doing. Like, I don't remember the rules, but I wasn't like, do I just go through the middle? That's stupid. <laughs> they have to be doing it. You know uh, this is actually the area that Stephen Krizada, wasn't he in the Breaking Bad movie? He was one of the characters, and he's actually a county commissioner. So I called He's him real? and left him a voice. Yeah, Stephen Quesada, he was one of the the actors that, I don't know, what, I never saw the dumb movie. It's a show, but, but I've never but, seen it either. Yeah, but he was one of the characters, and he ran for office, and he won. So I left the voicemail on his recording that I want a big, giant granite rock in the middle and put a Zia, like a metal art Zia sign, a Coco Pelli, or a Lobo. New Mexico Lobo statue on the middle of it. And that'll stop the protest of going right through. Is Lobo wanna... like that little guy with the hair who's dancing? Okay, that's a Coco Pelli. Oh, the okay. little flute guy. That's yeah, yeah. Pelli, and the Zia sign is the, like a, looks like a little cross with a little, um, looks like a swastika, but it's like a little cross with a sign. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and then Lobo is a, it's a Spanish word for wolf. The wolf is our New Mexico Lobo University sign. I would rather okay. see a metal wolf on top of that granite. Um, the metal art. Yeah. Well, thank you for the call, Sarah. That's pretty entertaining. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't ask them to throw more money at it, really, yeah, except I, paint, maybe. Yeah, I, well, maybe decorations in a traffic circle or roundabout might be a good idea sometimes. And we were actually already on the phone with a caller, Dave Ridley in New Hampshire. Uh, so what else is on your mind tonight? Yeah, so I guess I guess I disinfect your Dave tonight. So, uh, nice. Yeah, like I was saying, like I was saying, I just had this idea of you know getting out there, uh, cleaning up the roads, um, letting people tell me where they want me to clean, and then afterwards they can look at it and uh, you know pay me what they think it was worth. Or I'll you know I'll be doing some of it on a volunteer basis too. Um, but uh, I guess uh, I, if, if folks want to know more about it, I, 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 well, I should also say one idea would be to make it more of an activist thing. I was thinking about uh, kind of adopting Ernie, Ernie Hancock's idea that we just need, we need more, sign, lib, you know, more liberty signs everywhere so, that the, so we don't have to publicize it. Uh, so one idea would be to, to wear some kind of a, you know, a sign with some URL on it, you know, like advertising some Liberty organization in New Hampshire. That would be one thing that could be done. Uh, but if, if folks want to know uh, more about what I'm trying to do, I guess just go to forum.shiresociety.com and I posted some details and some pictures. 
Uh, and I guess so people remember the URL, I should probably sing it. Forum.shiresociety.com. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's the Ridley O song or <laughs> tune. Um, so, yeah, I really like that idea of Ridley. I, it kind of reminds me of I was doing this thing. I only did it once um, and I need to keep doing it. But I wanted to do this thing called Meet a Free Stater and just like have people come up and talk to us with signs that say Meet a Free Stater. And yours, it kind of reminded me of that because it's like, how, how are you going to hate someone who's on the side of the road picking up your trash? Yeah, well, did it, they did something so similar with the, with the open carry trash pickup where hmm. it's like, wow, all of these people... Nice. Like, you know, it catches your eye. Like, why is that guy have an AR-15 <laughs> strapped to his back? I didn't know anyone And then you're that. like, oh my goodness, they're picking up trash. And it's just like, it gives that an association in your head where it's like, well, these people are clearly open carrying firearms, which is legal in the state of New Hampshire. But they're also, you know, like a lot of the, the liberals are like, ah, people with guns are murderers. Yeah. But they're just picking up trash. Yeah. So it, it kind of gives that positive association with gun owners and it okay or you know if people just wearing freedom oriented shirts oh look at these free staters because there's a lot of people that are like the free staters are coming to new hampshire and they're trying to destroy our state and like there's a lot of that like fear democracy yeah there, there's a lot of that fear mongering aspect of it but if they saw free staters doing things like picking up trash walking old ladies across the street you know, donating to food pantry, like doing like good, wholesome things, which obviously plenty of free staters are doing that. It just doesn't necessarily get like attention mainstream press. Um, but yeah, the more attention we could bring to positive stuff like that, the better, you know, and if it inspires other people to start doing kind, awesome stuff like that, too, like that's awesome. So it's actually it's been so long I'd actually kind of forgotten about it, but I think I actually might be the guy who started those open carry litter pickups. I know I did one in two thousand seven um wow and uh another thing that happened was like we for example uh, when some people were arrested in Manchester or at least they were harassed by police for for open carry uh the way we went about protesting the police was to start an open carry litter pickup all around the police department. And so we, we we were picking up litter with our firearms on, and uh, that also seemed pretty useful. Wow, that's that's pretty ballsy. Because I feel like they <laughs> would, you know, call up their buddies like, "We got a bunch of people out here with guns." But what are they going to do? You're just picking up trash, right? Having a psychedelic experience isn't just as simple as misfiring chemicals in your brain. It actually connects you to the spiritual realm, and. He says, before getting into how psychedelics blast you into another dimension, we need to do a quick crash course of spirituality so you have that context. Existence has layers, and you vicariously exist in multiple realms at once. Our universe is just one tiny piece of an otherwise infinite realm. There's a whole lot more information around us than what you and I can perceive. However, some people, such as shamans, mediums, and mystics, can naturally access some of this otherworldly information. The dimension of experience discovered through psychedelics is always there beneath the surface. It's a timeless, formless, and ethereal realm which our higher selves reside in. We're only one new sentence in, but I got something to say. I just gotta (laughs) say, when you do psychedelics and you have those experiences, that's just something to me. 
I feel like it's just something you start to know that it's always there. Like yeah. on DMT, the walls melt and you just have this knowing that it could always be this way. You could perceive it if you knew how. Knew how. I, I don't know mm. how else to describe it. Yeah. You know what I mean, Riley? I, I vaguely know what you mean, yeah. It's just a no, knowing. Yeah. It's not like, you know, hearing voices saying that. I don't know. And that's what this guy seems to say, too. And it, it's just like comforting whenever you hear a human have similar experience as you. And it's and it's interesting because sometimes, you know, you'll know something, but you it's not always like present in the front of your brain. Mm. Or maybe you don't un, like know how to put it into words. Right. So when somebody says it and you're like, yes, that's what I've been thinking for all this time. <laughs> but, you know, I just didn't know how to express it. Exactly. I love that feeling. He goes on. He says it's a timeless, formless and ethereal realm which our higher selves reside in. This foreign dimension often goes by the name of the spiritual realm, ultimate reality, the collective consciousness, the fifth dimension, or source. Each religion and spiritual belief has different interpretations of this realm, but they all agree on a fundamental truth that it exists. Generally, we are disconnected from this realm as our egos keep us grounded to reality in order to ensure our physical survival which I think a lot of people need to remember, it's not all about just getting rid of your ego. If you didn't have an ego like at all to speak of and you saw that a train was coming your way, you wouldn't value that. You'd be like, oh, I'll just be in another realm and it'll be fine. Yeah, and you need to make friends with your ego. You need to make friends with that ego instead of just obliterate it all the time. I, I think agree. that's a that's a great way to phrase it is making friends with your ego because there there has to be a balance right because there is that like self preservation aspect of it, um, so it's not necessarily like complete ego death, but maybe dismantling some of those negative effects of the ego. Mm-hmm. Just the things you think you are that if you really think about it that hard, that's not really you. That's something you're doing. That's your job. You know, that's a relationship you're in. It it isn't you. And sometimes people go their whole lives without ever noticing that that is not them. Um, Anyways, he goes on. He says, the ego acts as a plug to reality, which keeps our feet on the ground. I'm sure there are forces behind the scenes pulling strings in this dimension too. But typically we're bound to this realm until we die. After all, we're here to have a human experience. If it was so easily transcended, then what's the point? Oh, that's that's a great one. I really like this article, Riley. Good. Thanks for bringing it in. You're welcome. Imagine the object of spirituality as an alternate realm which has many different pathways leading into it. These pathways can be accessed through myriad disciplines such as meditation, yoga, fasting, and prayer. There's a barrier between the physical construct of your consciousness and the spiritual construct but they are always tethered together. So this is from NPR. It says doctors have their own diagnosis, moral distress from an inhumane health system. Um, And it's written by a doctor named Lisa Doggett. She says the young man was in his mid twenties when he came to see me for severe abdominal pain at my small community clinic. The pain worse than he'd ever experienced had persisted for weeks and was getting worse. He cried out when I examined him. I didn't know the cause of his pain, but I could think of possibilities, including a ruptured appendix, perforated ulcer, or pancreatitis. 
He needed an urgent CT scan and a surgical consult. The fastest way to get both was to send him to the emergency room. But he said he couldn't go. He was uninsured. As his family physician, I had to convince him. I explained the need for further evaluation, the risk of waiting. I mean, if it was a ruptured appendix and he had already been feeling this pain for weeks, that's pretty serious. Um, I told him the ER was legally bound to assess and stabilize him. They could arrange a payment plan. Still, he hesitated, explaining he couldn't pay the bill. This young man is one of many patients I've seen over the years who needed care and couldn't afford it. I knew that hospital charges might exceed his annual payments for rent. He could face years of debt, even bankruptcy. I don't recall his diagnosis, but I think he managed to improve without surgery. I still wonder, was I too quick to send him for emergency care? Did I do more harm than good? Like, you know, giving him a bill. And um, it, it makes sense that she would feel this way. Basically, she goes into saying that she found out after 13 years of being in uh, public health clinics that she was experiencing something called moral distress and moral distress and moral injury were first used in a military context to characterize the torment fe felt by soldiers as they tried to process and justify their actions amid the cruelty of war so like basically like if you killed someone in war and you start to feel like that wasn't right i'm not doing it but i mean i i shouldn't have done that and you start to justify it to yourself like, oh, well, it was for freedom. So it, it feels dramatic to compare uh, actions in war to actions in medicine. But I, I can completely relate to this. I have had very similar feelings working in healthcare, um, And it's it is so hard because there will be times where either somebody is legally sectioned in the hospital, like court order, and like legally they cannot leave. Um, and it sometimes it was my job to essentially sit in there with them and then make sure almost almost like security, which is very strange that like as a CNA or um, a nursing assistant, if you don't know what that is, like that was my job. Um, and then there were other times where somebody's either confused or um, or they're impaired, whatever, and, and they're not consenting to the treatment, but they're either a harm to themselves or. Or even a harm to me and the other staff. And we either have to put them in restraints. Or we have to use medical restraints. And you know like give them Haldol. So they either calm down. There are so many times where it's like you're put in very difficult situations like that. And it's like there would just be days where I like sat in my car after work and like decompressed. And was like either what happened to somebody wasn't right and I just sat there and watched it happen and felt helpless and couldn't help the person or those like tricky moral grounds where it's like, okay, like they were going to hurt themselves or they were confused or whatever. Um, so it's like, I don't like how things went down, but it was kind of necessary. So to have to sit with that, and I, I was only in that kind of healthcare for like two years, maybe a little bit longer, like maybe three years. Uh, but I got burnt out from it. Like by the time I I switched to the um, the setting that I work in now as a nurse, I mean, it was like now now where I work, it's a completely voluntary um, facility. If somebody wants to leave, they can leave, and that was something that was really appealing to me because there were so many times 
when I was working at the hospital that we were essentially holding people hostage. Wow. And it was legal and, and maybe necessary, maybe not. You know, you have an elderly woman with dementia who's going to run out into the middle of the road, maybe. You know, it's so you you just get put in those like really weird moral situations where it's just like, you know, you, you're kind of like lose either way. Hmm. And that sounds like a much better fit for you to go work at this place where people are voluntarily walking in. And uh, thank you for the explanation, because basically that's what she does at the beginning of the article. She explains what what she means by moral injury and moral distress in healthcare professionals. And the very next thing she brought up is what you brought up, um, that there's an alarming increase in physician burnout. Doctors struggle to meet productivity demands, rushing in and out of exam rooms, working late into the evening to finish documenting in cumbersome electronic medical record systems. Despite some efforts to move away from a fee-for-service payment model, in most cases, our system still rewards volume of patients seen over value of care provided. Um, One thing I just got to say about it is, it's weird, that the little uh, headline there was about burnout. Um, I guess she's just, I don't know. She she is explaining burnout, but she didn't use the word. Um, My question is, why are doctors rewarded more for the amount of patients seen? Like, they're seeing 100 patients a day. Why are they more rewarded for that than the value of the healthcare given? Shouldn't it be the exact opposite? You just heard highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. You can download full episodes, subscribe to our podcast, listen live and more, all for free at freetalklive.com.